Welcome to Brandon Nevats. We are delighted to be joined by, I think, our most famous guests, the guest that has launched our show to superstardom, the guest that has made sure that every philosopher in the United States knows about us. Stephen Kirshner, wonderful having you back. We're going to be talking about moral responsibility. Would you like to start with a thought experiment? I would. Before I do, just right right quickly, I'd like to thank you, Jason and Mark, for having me. It's really a great honor and a pleasure to be on your show. So thank you. And also just quick caveat, my work reflects my own, not that of any employer or group of which I remember. All right. So my two cases. Number one is Patty Hearst's case. Patty Hearst, rich heiress, kidnapped in 1974. Allegedly, she was brainwashed by the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, so that she had these revolutionary Marxist ideas. Leave aside whether she was actually brainwashed, rather convinced, imagine that she was brainwashed, and then ask yourself, is she responsible the moment after they completed brainwashing her? Intuitively, I claim the answer is no, and that a lot follows from that. Second case, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So imagine that Dr. Frankenstein, from a number of different bodies and brains, creates the monster immediately after the monster is created and then comes to life. So at its first moment of consciousness when he has psychology, is he responsible for having the psychology or for any decision he makes immediately upon creation? Again, I claim the answer is no, and I think a lot follows from that with regard to whether or not it's even possible to be responsible. Okay, so for a moment, let's agree that the two cases are analogous, and in both cases, both Frankenstein and Patty Hearst are not responsible. What follows? Okay, so... If you think about what we need for a person to be responsible, we need some sort of basis. So by analogy, consider epistemology, right? You can't have, I claim that in in epistemology that foundationalism is true. You can't have an infinite sequence of justified beliefs, and you can't have a circular sequence of justified beliefs. Something has to add justification to the system. I think this. so there has to be something which is either self-justified, a belief which is self-justified, or justified by something that is not itself a justified belief, perhaps a perception. The same thing is true in value. You can't have an infinite sequence of externally good things, extrinsically good things. You can't have a cer- an infinite sequence. You can't have a circular sequence. Instead, you have to have something that has intrinsic value to add value into the system, and that intrinsically valuable thing can make other things extrinsically valuable. By analogy, in the context of responsibility, you can't have an infinite sequence of responsibility makers. You have to have something which is a a sort of foundation of responsibility. And I'm going to call that a basic responsibility maker. It's basic because someone is responsible for it, but not because he is responsible for something else. So if you think, okay, what could that foundation, what could that basic responsibility maker be you might think, well, there's two conditions that might apply to it. One is that a person has to control it. It's the fundamental intuition. You're responsible for something only if you can control it. And second, you have to connect to it, right? It has to be connected to your psychology. But if we have these two principles and we look at the two most plausible candidates for the basic responsibility maker, two principles result. Either having a certain sort of psychology or making a decision. But neither is going to seem to do the job. Two principles are you're responsible for psychology only if you chose it and you're responsible for that choice. And you're responsible for a choice only if it flowed from your psychology and you're responsible for that psychology. Well, when you add those two, you're going to get an infinite regress. 
more specifically, there is going to be no responsibility maker. So if we ask, okay, what's the basic responsibility maker? Is it a psychology? No. I mean, consider the monster immediately upon creation. He is not responsible for having psychology. Why? Because he didn't control it. Well, imagine he chose the psychology, but he didn't wasn't responsible for the choice. So like Patty Hearst, the woman was manipulated into choosing the psychology. Well, intuitively, you can see it. If you're manipulated into choosing the psychology, you're not responsible simply in virtue of that psychology. Okay, second option. Is the basis for a responsibility, the basic responsibility maker a decision? We can quickly see that this is not the case, right? Consider a random or arbitrary decision. That's not going to make you responsible. Why? It's not going to make you responsible because it doesn't connect up to you in the right way. That is, it does not flow from your psychology. Consider a case where you're not responsible for your psychology and you make a choice based on that psychology. So Patty Hearst is brainwashed. She then decides to rob the Hibernio bank. Is she responsible for that decision, right? Made immediately after the manipulation. No. Totally you can see that. So what's left? We need a foundation for responsibility. The two most plausible candidates of psychology and a decision both fail. Hence, a person is not responsible. So that's my argument, and I think it flows from those two principles. So let me see if I can try and counter that in a couple of ways. So it might be that we're not totally responsible for our psychology. You're born in a way that you've got a set of genetic traits, you're exposed to an environment, your makeup is not entirely in your control, but you might get a certain amount of control which then allows you to constitute yourself in a certain way so that when you exercise your will, you are able to make choices in a deliberate fashion. And we might think that's sufficient, that what you don't need to be the total controller of your psychology. You don't need to have made the foundation from, from the bottom up, just that you are sufficiently in control of your psychology, that you are able to self-moderate, that you can deliberate over choices, and that when you then choose to do certain things, that that grounds, grounds the responsibility. So if you're thinking about what you want for dinner and you say, well, I could go out for a vegan pizza or I could murder my neighbor and eat them because they look absolutely delicious. And you think about it and you think about the harm that would be caused with the vegan pizza and the harm that would be caused to the neighbor. And you say, yeah, it would cause an enormous amount of suffering to the neighbor and their family, but I'm going to do it anyway. It seems odd to say, well, you're not responsible because you weren't totally in control over your psychology. So I, I wonder why we need ultimate control as opposed to sufficient control. Good. So an excellent point. I don't think we need ultimate control. I just think that we need a responsibility foundation or a basic responsibility maker. So your suggestion, which I think is an excellent one, is you're responsible in virtue of exercising your will. And let's just assume that you exercise your will when you make a decision. Perhaps a willing is different than a decision, but for now, let's assume they're one and the same. So we can ask yourself, okay, so... Is the decision alone what makes you responsible? Well, no, because if your decision did not flow from your psychology, it doesn't connect to you. It's like a random or arbitrary decision. So it can't be the mere fact that you made a decision that makes you responsible. Well, imagine you're responsible for your decision because it flowed from your psychology and you're responsible for that psychology. Well, here we're off to the races, right? Because then we have to know, okay, well, in virtue of what are you responsible for your psychology from which flowed your decision? Well, is it a previous decision? If it's not a previous decision, then the exercise of will is not a grounds responsibility. If it is a previous decision, that is, you made a previous decision, then we ask the same question. Are you responsible for the decision by itself, or are you responsible for the decision because it flowed from your psychology and you're responsible from that psychology? 
So what happens is you're forced into either saying that a decision is the regress stopper, in which case a random arbitrary decision could make you responsible, or you have an infinite regress. More fundamentally, I think we can see that the decision is just not going to be the thing that grounds responsibility because a decision disconnected from a psychology for which you're responsible is simply not something that can make you responsible. So I think your suggestion is an excellent one, and I think it's the most plausible solution. I just don't think it works. So what I'm interested in is the way that you phrase the objection and the way that you phrase the principle. So when you talk about your psychology needing to be something that you are responsible for and something that you have control over in order for your psychology to be the cause of a morally responsible decision and a morally responsible action, I think you've already given us everything we need because you've said it's your psychology, right? So when you say it's your psychology, to me, that just means whatever flows from that psychology is your responsibility. We don't have to place the extra demand that you are responsible for your psychology because it's yours. It's your psychology. For better or for worse, however you inherited, whether it was instilled in you by brainwashers like Patty Hearst or whether you were instantaneously generated, it's your psychology, so you're responsible for what follows from it. So in other words, for me, what matters is proximity. The reason why I'm responsible and not someone else is that the psychology is mine, not someone else's. Good. Again, another excellent suggestion. And I think by yours, you mean, look, I am a brain or an animal. And you think this is the psychology of this brain or this animal. And that's all it means to be mine or yours. I, I just think this runs head on into our intuitions. I mean, take the Patty Hearst case. I mean, imagine that the SLA were a bunch of neurosurgeons and they neurosurgically changed her ideas from that of a, a vaguely free market right wing nurse. I actually don't know what her political views were in 19, let's assume that she had some, some free will, right? Into like this radical, violent Marxist, semi-auto-toting bank robber. And you think, well, second they were done neuro-manipulating her, the minute they put down the surgical tools and stopped rearranging her neurons, she's responsible, not even for a decision she makes, but merely for having that psychology. I, I guess I think there's two ways you can see this is not the case. One, you can't be responsible merely for having a psychology because there's no control aspect to it. It's only when you exercise control in some way, make a decision based on that psychology. But second, just intuitively, the split second they put down the surgical tools and Patty Hearst now has this sort of, this radical Marxist violent ideology. She's responsible in invert because it's hers. Yes, I think this is not an intuition I have, and I don't think it's an intuition that most of us have. Okay, good. So, so now I, I think the way that you're presenting the objection in both of those cases is quite telling because... In the Patty Hearst case, you're saying, imagine they just brainwashed her or the neuroscientist just changed her beliefs. And in the case of the Frankenstein monster, it was just created. Okay. Yes. So, so in those cases, I think our intuitions do align with yours. So I think you have very plausible intuitions that they're not responsible for what they do. But now suppose Patty Hearst leaves the cult and her brainwashers are no longer around and Frankenstein leaves his lair and, and they live a life right? So mm -hmm. Patty Hearst, let's say, goes on for decades after that to perform actions that we might say originally are rooted in the brainwasher's views. But she continues up the mantle and maybe kidnaps someone else and brainwashes them down the line. At what point do we say, well, Patty Hearst is responsible? Now, your view is, I'm guessing that you say she never is. But okay. 
our intuitions are not so clear once time passes. So what I quite like is Robert Kane and Alfred Mealy's view that what happens is at some point you perform an action that's not rooted in some determiner that's within your total control. They accept that. And they would even go so far as to say, if I understand them both correctly, that action is not fully free and not fully, you're not fully morally responsible for it. But the actions that follow from it later become more and more under your control. So we might want to think about moral responsibility not as a one or zero, you are or you aren't, but it builds over time from a decision that you make that may be arbitrary. Great. So I like the point, and I think you have our intuition is exactly correct. That, yeah, I mean, sure, in the case of Patty Hearst, she's not responsible immediately after manipulation. In the case of the monster, Dr. Frankenstein's monster, he's not responsible. But over time, if they endorse their attitudes, or if they identify with them, then, or if they act on them, then over time, they become responsible. The problem with this is that it's the equivalent of saying, look, I'm losing money in each sale, but I'm making it up in volume. I mean, where did the responsibility come in? Right? Did it come in merely in virtue of having the psychology? No. Is it responsible in terms of a decision? So you endorse it or you validate your attitude. Well, if you're not responsible for the psychology, how could you be responsible for the decision that flows from it? And by the way, it doesn't have to be a cause. It be indeterministic. The compatibilist-incompatibilist debate has no impact whatsoever on my arguments. Now, take the case of Robert Kane with a self-forming choice or self-forming decision. I mean, this is just entirely mysterious, right? How do you self, how do you make a decision other than by sort of ending deliberation and forming an intention based on a certain amount of input, based on beliefs and desires that you somehow have, you end the consideration of them. But I mean, the, the beliefs and desires just are your psychology, right? Deliberation is just the process by which the psychology is sorted through. I think a self-forming decision is no different than a self-created being. Right. Which Galen Strawson says, well, maybe people are responsible if they're a self-creating being, but that's impossible. And it's impossible for the obvious reason. You have to exist before you can create. Same thing. You have to have a psychology before you can decide something. So how could it be a self-forming decision? So I claim that a self-forming decision is no more possible than a self-created being. If that's the case, then that's not going to be the basis of responsibility. And we're back to the original question. What is it that's the foundation? That is, what is it that's the basic responsibility maker? Going through cycles of psychological states and decisions back to new psychological states, back to new decisions, cycling through is not going to add a responsibility foundation. I think it's proximity. So I think when you take proximity plus the cycling process, you arrive at what we intuitively think is moral responsibility. So I know that you've said that the grounder needs to be either a decision or your psychology, but you need to have control over both and we don't get control because there's this vicious circle. But I think you're missing proximity as a possibility. But I'm not sure how proximity comes in. I mean, imagine we had a circle of extrinsically good things. And you think, okay, well, can we have a circle of insurance? Well, well, no, because somebody's got to add value into the system. That is, we need an intrinsically valuable thing. And how would a cycle of things, none of which by themselves add responsibility to the system, make the system as a whole responsible or make some step in the system responsible? That is just like an infinite regress or a circular regress of extrinsic value cannot establish value in the world. Similarly, an infinite regress or a circular regress of extrinsic responsibility makers cannot make someone intrinsically responsible. 
So again, I mean, I like your suggestion. I think attracts our intuitions strongly. I just think there's no foundation there. We wouldn't tolerate that in value. We wouldn't tolerate that in knowledge. We wouldn't tolerate that with regard to rightness. Why would we ever tolerate that in the context of responsibility? So I'm interested in this idea of a self-creating being. Could we imagine, let's say that you've got an artificial intelligence that's created by an external programmer, and it has the ability to add modules to itself and delete modules from itself. And it has enough awareness to be able to select what modules it wants. And eventually, it's like a thesis is ship. So it removes all the old planks and has entirely new, newly created planks. So when we look at the program in the present and we compare it to what the programmer made, there is not one string of code that's the same. All the old code has been deleted and the AI has made itself entirely. Let's say that the AI can then make decisions which could affect outsiders. Could we hold that AI responsible, given that it's a self-created being? We can imagine it's an embodied being. We can imagine that it's sitting in like a flesh-like body, that it's able to go out and tend to the sick or go on a murdering and raping spree, and that it is entirely a self-made being. Would you think that thing was responsible? No. So I think that's an excellent suggestion. So if you had an AI system that sort of, in the end, adopted its entire psychology, rejected its initial psychology, but each step in the way would seem to rest on what, either the previous psychology or random or arbitrary forces. If you're not responsible for the previous psychology, you're not going to be responsible for a decision that flows from it. You're not going to be responsible for a random or arbitrary decision, which deviates from the previous psychology. So where would the responsibility come in? It's like having a bunch of zeros and then saying, but at the end, suddenly we have a positive number. Well, from what? What would have grounded it? And I think the ship of thesis is exactly the analogy that we want. We think, okay, well, where would the responsibility maker have come in? Now, if there's no step at which you can say, ah, here's where the responsibility maker came in, or here's the range at which it came in. So I think, so take another kind of cartoonish example of, of a self-created being. So on, on these like tall tales regarding Chuck Norris, one of these sites says Chuck Norris is so great that he doesn't have a father. He went back in time and impregnated his mother. So he's self-created. And you think, okay, imagine Chuck Norris did that. Would that make him responsible? Well, no. What would have added responsibility to the system? The mere fact that he created himself is not going to add responsibility to the system. The mere fact that the AI has reshaped its psychology following some previous steps, there's no step at which responsibility is added into the system. Again, I mean, it's not our intuition because we think of ourselves as responsible and we think we didn't start responsible. So through enough cycles of decisions and psychological states, somewhere it came in, but the absence of a foundation prevents us from saying that. So even if, we, let's say God goes infinitely far back, God being a necessary being exists infinitely far back in time, does that make him responsible? Because for every psychological state he had, he decided to have it for every decision flowed from a psychological state. And the answer is no. I mean, it's like an infinite sequence of extrinsically good things. An infinite sequence of extrinsically good things does not introduce value into the system. There has to be something intrinsically valuable. If God made an infinite number of decisions going infinitely far back in time, he's still not responsible. Why? because there's no basic responsibility maker. And that's independent of whether you're a finite or flawed being like us or an infinite and perfect being like God. Fact is we need a basic responsibility maker and there is none. You can be skeptical about the nature of values and norms entirely. You can say, look, we live in a physical world. It's not clear to me where wrong makers could ever come from given this physical world. There's nothing baked into the nature of reality that tells you torturing is wrong, suffering is wrong. You've got to make some kind of base assumption. 
And it seems like there's a couple of ways in which you could go. The one is to say, yeah, there is no basic normativity at all, but you could adopt some kind of normative theory for other reasons, some kind of pragmatic reason. So you could say, well, you ought to be a Kantian, a contractarian, a utilitarian, even if we can't solve the ultimate question about where norms come from. And maybe you can make a similar move on moral responsibility, which is say, well, actually, we don't need to solve the ultimate question. We just need to sort of bracket it and move on to the penultimate question. And given that we operate in a world in which moral responsibility is an incredibly useful thing, we're able to lock people up for their misdeeds and praise people for their good deeds, that we don't actually need this foundation. And that a foundation is going to be very hard to find in many sectors. And we seem to operate as if these foundations were there. It might be that we are really deluding ourselves, that there is no ultimate moral responsibility, there is no ultimate source morality, but we really ought to behave as if there is one. So I think you're, I think you're, I, he has a really strong one that, look, we just have some sort of incredibly in, in powerful justification for being that responsible, right? We can just, in, we can introspect and see it in ourselves. Our morality depends on it, at least our non-consequentialist morality depends on it. So we know we're responsible. All right. So we can't provide a foundation. We can't find a basic responsibility maker, but we'll get to it. We just don't have it right now. So I think there's two reasons to reject that. One is we've been working on this for thousands of years. The fact that we don't have the most fundamental part of it solved is a real problem. Second, there's some supplemental arguments that show that the lack of basic responsibility maker is not a problem that we can't solve yet, but a problem that we're not going to be able to solve because, in fact, it's impossibly responsible. And here are just two supplemental arguments. If the basic responsibility maker requires something for which we're connected, psychologically connected to, and that we can control, it's presumably going to be something inside the head. It's going to be some internal event or feature. But I mean, all our intuitions of responsibility involve experience events. You shot this person, you lied, you were a really good spouse or a really good parent. I think they have our intuitions focus on external matters. And yet, if we're responsible for anything, it's going to be for and only for internal matters. A second way to see this is that take blameworthiness, right? We standardly think if you're responsible for something, then it's at least, if you have, if you're responsible, then it's at least possible that you're blameworthy. We say, okay, well, what is the, what is it that makes you blameworthy? Or in more nerd-like terms, what's the basic blameworthiness maker? And so we ask, okay, well, the, what are the two leading candidates here? Well, negligence and acrosia. These, these candidates just don't work. I mean, take negligence, right? I, it's hard to see how you can control that which you don't know. Also, that which you don't know is not part of your psychology. It's hard to see how it connects to you. And just intuitively, it's hard to see how you can be blameworthy when for not knowing something, when you don't know that you don't know it. Okay, so maybe it's not negligence, maybe it's just a prosia. Now, one, this is going to cause our irresponsible intuitions to go haywire because it means that all true believers are not blameworthy. So Hitler and Stalin, Stalin and Mao suddenly become not blameworthy. Why? They're negligent at most. They're not, they're not a product with regard to their, their wrongdoings. But maybe intuitions about, you know, the worst people in human history. Uh, okay, maybe those are mistaken. So what about a crosier? So Krasi occurs when someone decides all things considered or judges all things considered they ought to do something, and then the person doesn't do it. But what would explain this sort of failure, this erratic action? Is it that the person doesn't know how to do what he judges all things considered he ought to do? Well, that's a failure of negligence. That's not a failure of a Krasia. Is it that a desire just overpowered him? Well, that's compulsion. You're not blaming for the compulsion. Is it that he was a cratic with regard to some earlier step in the process that he needed to do to make sure he avoided the later aquatic failure? Well, that just pushes the issue back. So again, we lack a basic blame release maker. 
So I think your argument, the kind of Morian shift argument that, look, we just know we have incredible intuitive support for responsibility is mistaken for a number of reasons. One is, again, we've been working on this for thousands of years. Two, there are just other ways to see that responsibility intuitions don't track the best theory of responsibility. Think about responsible internalism. And three, we can't even account for the epistemic condition, right? Uh, that is, we can't even say in virtue of what are you blameworthy? So, I mean, there's all these converging evidence suggesting that people are not responsible. And again, they're not responsible independent of the traditional data. Are we determined or not determined? Do we have libertarian control or do we have guidance control? To my mind, none of that affects the responsibility issue. What matters is, are you blameworthy for something? And the answer is no. So I imagine someone might say, okay, you've convinced me that responsibility as you understand it is not something that we have. And let's just call that strong responsibility. But we do seem to have some other kind of responsibility, call it weak responsibility. And we might just define that differently with different sets of criteria. So if you want to understand what weak responsibility is, you don't need to necessarily have full control over its causes. It could be rooted in a decision that you make, which ultimately leads to other decisions that you make. Or it could be that it's just proximal to you, that it's a decision that you make, not necessarily leading to other decisions, but it's your decision. And that might be good enough. In other words, someone could say, well, your criteria for responsibility are too strong to cover every sense of responsibility that we consider in our everyday lives. And it's this weaker sense of responsibility that's good enough. If the kind of responsibility that you're talking about is logically impossible, which is what it sounds like, then yes. maybe we don't want it anyway. So I think your suggestion is an excellent one. And this is kind of a very well-explored and powerful line in the responsibility literature. One way to put it is the view that, look, more fundamental than being responsible is being held responsible. And there are good reasons to hold people responsible. So you see this in arguments like Peter Strawson, who argues that, look, really what we want to do is we want to hold people responsible, either because we can't avoid it or because it creates valuable things we want, or because of JC Smart and other people who think that act or rule utilitarianism tells us that we ought to hold people responsible. One problem with this is that it seems that it's more fundamental to be responsible than to be held responsible, right? It seems we can get it wrong. Sometimes it does achieve the best results to hold people responsible who are not responsible. So imagine Patty Hearst really was brainwashed as a site, and I actually think she was just convinced. But imagine that she really was brainwashed. It might achieve the best results or send a really good message or shut down other cases of Hearst-like fakers to hold her responsible. Sure, that might be right, but it wouldn't be correct. Why? Because in fact, she was not responsible. This suggests that responsibility is more fundamental than holding responsible. The opposite is true too. We could hold people not responsible who are in fact responsible. So imagine we think that you're not responsible if you grew up with a lot of social background, but in fact you are responsible. So we're excusing you when you in fact have no excuse. Again, this seems to be mistaken. Why? Not just because it has bad consequences or good consequences, but instead it's because more fundamental to being responsible is being held responsible. Let me just touch on a second way to look at it. So in the responsibility literature, some people, uh, most notably people like David Shoemaker, distinguish between things like accountability, attributability, and answerability. And they say, look, by responsibility, we just mean some sort of tendency to have these various types of reactive attitudes. And it doesn't involve anything like the fundamental accountability notion that you're using. And I guess I think, look, by responsibility, we just mean that by itself, it can justify reactive attitudes. I don't see how like tracking different 
types of attitudes and then punting on the issue of whether or not they really do justify reactive attitudes independent of the good, the right, or the pragmatic gets us around that issue. In the end, we want to know as a metaphysical matter, are you responsible? Whether or not it's right or good or just or pragmatically valuable to hold responsible, I mean, that's an interesting question, but it's a different question. So I think your approach is a really interesting one. It's a really powerful one, but I think it's just a mistake to say that holding responsible is either more fundamental or as fundamental as being responsible. In fact, what we want is something which justifies those reactive attitudes, but justifies those reactive attitudes as being responsible. So I wonder about this. Earlier you referred to negligence as a method for holding people responsible. And it seems that negligence doesn't look at what your internal mental states are fully. Right? In other words, if we say, did you intend on doing this? We think about the person who's deliberating, making a decision to do it. With a negligent person, we say, well, you should have known because a reasonable person would have done this. And your failure to do that is what makes you accountable. And so the idea is that there's some external standard about what you know reasonable people do. And that's why we can hold you responsible. And that doesn't have to do so much with your internal psychology as to do with this other social standard. And so can we ground the responsibility in your failure to adhere to that? Good. So one thing is that not only is it hard as an intuitive matter to see why you're responsible for negligence. I mean, how can you control that which you don't know? How does it connect to your psychology if you don't know it? How can we intuitively how can you be responsible for what you don't know when you don't know that you don't know it? But I mean, moreover, even as a legal matter, so you and I are lawyers, in criminal law, we generally do not hold people responsible for negligence, right? I mean, for most crimes, you have to have general intent, which requires purpose or knowledge or recklessness. Negligence will not suffice. And in other parts of criminal law, we have these oddball asymmetries, right? You can be held criminally liable if you don't know the law for mistake of law, but not mistake of fact. What would separate out these two things? Or take the religious context. It's an odd notion that God can send you to hell based on negligence. I mean, you didn't know that you should look into this sacred text. And as a result, you have to spend, I mean, it's just, it's just a strongly counterintuitive view. So what I guess I would say is, look, as a matter of how, she, how we actually run our lives in terms of the law, at least criminal law, we don't actually, negligence does not suffice for punishment. There are some exceptions, negligent homicide and a few cases with regard to some other sorts of crimes. Now, in the civil law we do, which is under tort law, we very much focus on negligence. But here, we do it in a way which is probably justified by economic efficiency, right? The economic model suggests we should use negligence. And we use an efficiency model to tell us what is negligence. This looks very much forward-looking. And it doesn't look like we're saying, well, in some sense, you're blameworthy, you should have known. We just say, look, having the standard maximizes the good or maximizes efficiency, and that's where it is. And even negligence in tort law is really strange. I mean, take the case kind of ham this oddball case that you're studying tort law. Hammondry v. Jenner in 1971, where this person had an epileptic fit. Now he wasn't negligent in knowing that he was going to have an epileptic fit. He hadn't had such a fit in years. And his car crashed into someone's house and damages the person's house. Now, leaving aside what the law says, you might think, well, well, of course he should pay. Why? Because he smashed up this person's house. He caused the damage. But of course, he wasn't that negligent. He wasn't blameworthy. And same thing with the Feinberg cabin case, right? A person is, a huge snowstorm hits, the person's trying to stay alive. The only way they can do is to break into someone's cabin and burn in, burn the person's furniture. We think, well, you want to compensate the person, but were you negligent? No. You did exactly what you should do under the circumstances. 
So it seems that negligence doesn't even seem to get our intuitions correct with regard to compensatory justice. That is what tort law would say as a matter of justice. And then one last thing about negligence, and that seems to me that there's kind of a more fundamental failing here. When you say that you should have known this, now we could show out the should in terms of morality, right? You're wrong not to do so. But we could say that you should, in a sense, you're blameworthy if you didn't know it. But of course, that begs the question, right? The question is, are you blameworthy for negligence? You can't then bring in a negligence, build it into the very account of negligence of blamelessness itself. The mere fact that it's morally right to hold you accountable, whether it's a matter of criminal law or civil law, seems to be a different issue from whether you really were in fact accountable for negligence. So far, you've presented quite a strong argument for your position. I'd like to now cash out some of the consequences of the view. So suppose we agree that people are not to be held morally responsible and are not morally responsible for their actions. Does that mean that we should no longer punish people? So if that were the case, imagine someone murders someone else. So you've got the murderer and the murderer goes to court and the judge says, well, you're guilty of them. And that guy sitting at the back there watching who had nothing to do with the murder, he's just Maybe he's a journalist covering the case. He did not commit the murder, but we're going to punish him. Do you think that decision to punish the journalist is as unjustified as the decision to punish the murderer? It sounds like on your view it would be, right? Yes. So yes, so so with the question is, is there anything left to non-consequential? Jason and I have certain consequential sympathies, but let's go non-consequentialism first. Is there anything left to non-consequentialism when you lose responsibility? I mean, it's a fairly complex issue, but I think the answer is no. And here's the idea. If non-consequentialism is true, then there are certain side constraints in our actions, certain things which morally prevent us from maximizing the good. But what are these side constraints? Well, it seems most likely the side constraints would be something like rights. Right? I mean, we think, okay, what sort of side constraints do we have in mind? Claims to non-interference. Two-way liberties, you may do something or not do something within that perimeter of non-interference. You can change the boundaries of the perimeter of non-interference. All these things look a lot like rights. So it looks like if there is non-consequential, we have side constraints, we have side constraints, we have rights. But do rights rest on something like autonomy or choice or responsibility? And I think the answer there is yes. Why? Well, what is it that rights do? Well, one of the main things they do, if you think like Ronald Dworkin, is they trump interests, right? They say, oh, we don't just sum up interests and whatever sums up the interests is the correct thing to do. This trumps interests. Second, what does it do? Well, if you look at the sort of stereotypical rights, the rights to free speech, religion, the right to have sex with whom you want, the right to associate with who you want, the right to believe what you want, all these things look like they're justified by responsibility or autonomy. That is, somehow they're tied in with a person who shapes his own life. And then third, think about like Hofeldian powers. We often think that rights include Hofeldian powers. That is the status by which you can change one of your other claims or liberties. Well, what would justify, what would make so important these powers? It would seem to be the value of a self-shaping life. So as much as I, I hate to sort of go down this path, it seems to me that we lose non-consequentialism if you think that non-consequential requires a side constraint side constraint requires rights and that rights are justified by autonomy or free will or something along those line choices what about consequentialism here it really gets murky if people are not moral agents 
is there still such a thing as right and wrong? There doesn't seem to be such a thing as good and bad, but take a gecko, right? So imagine you have some gorgeous gecko and he's deciding whether to eat a cricket or a worm, a big fat worm. And he would really enjoy the worm a lot more. But in fact, he eats the cricket. So he gets five utils from the cricket, but he would have gotten 10 utils from the worm. Would we say that the gecko did the wrong thing because he failed to maximize the good or maximize uh, interests? It's not clear to me that we would. And if what this tells us is that the right and wrong apply to and only to moral agents, the case of consequentialism becomes endangered as well. On the other hand, you might think, look, we still have good or bad. I mean, you know, a hedon is a hedon, a dollar is a dollar. So we can still go down this path. But yeah, so going back to your initial question, is it as wrong to punish the person who committed the murder as the to punish the journalist, assuming the consequences are the same? The answer is yes. I mean, the price you pay when you lose responsibility is heavy. And I think it takes down our consequences with it as distasteful as that is. So in light of the repercussions, I mean, this is an interesting problem is it may very well be true that there is no such thing as moral responsibility, that if there's no moral responsibility, then it's strange to try and say you deserve something or you should be blamed or you deserve to be punished. But ought we to pretend? Should we say, well, there's no foundation, but we should act as if there is one. And we should go and put the murderer behind bars and we shouldn't go and put the journalist behind bars and we should go and praise people who tend to the sick, even if there is no good foundation behind any of it. So good. So the idea is, well, okay, so people are not responsible, but really on consequential grounds, it maximizes good to behave as if they were. There's a bunch of studies that show that you think people are responsible, that you act better. And also, look, having things like deterrence or incapacitation, moral reform, that these can benefit us regardless of whether they're tracking responsibility or what people deserve. So one problem I have is that, look, if this is consequential, we're back to the gecko case. I mean, do you think that sort of things which are not moral agents do right and wrong actions? So, I mean, do we really think that the gecko acted wrongly when he ate the cricket rather than the worm? I'm just not sure what to say about that, but my suspicion is to say no. And then what that tells us is you have to be a moral agent to be subject to right and wrong. We're not moral agents. But second, if this is understood to justify rule consequentialism, there's a whole bunch of problems with rule consequentialism, independent of act consequentialism. Just to go over a few of these, I mean, one problem with rule consequentialism is the kind of the old rule or sub-objection, right? Why put a rule between you and what you know and what in fact is the right result? Second, you have conflicting systems of rules. When you have two systems of rule, both of which maximally bring about the good, but yet they have conflicting requirements. Does that mean an act is both right or wrong or neither right or wrong? Hard to see what we want to say about that. So, so yeah, so I mean, th th those are kind of two problems. And then the third problem with rule consequences, you might think that, look, how exactly what happens within a system of rules, you have two conflicting rules, right? One of which permits the act, one doesn't. Does that make that one act both right or wrong, neither right or wrong? So you have a series of problems with, with rule consequentialism. You also have a fundamental metaphysical issue with consequentialism in general, it's rule or act, and that is with backtracking. So imagine that Jones shoots Smith. Let's say he shoots him a mile away and it takes two seconds for the bullet to kill Smith. And we say, well, Jones's act is wrong in virtue of killing Smith. Jones's act has already ended. So it's hard to see how the killing of Smith, which occurs after the act, can backtrack in time and make the act, it's, make the act wrong. 
So there's problems with consequentialism and rule consequentialism in general. I think the problems are fairly severe. But I think that's our best bet for holding people responsible. If we should hold people responsible at all, the justification will have to be something like act consequentialism. But that doesn't base the rule-based account. It just tells us, look, you should hold someone responsible when and only when it's going to bring about the best results. Yeah, so you could take a view which is accept that people are not moral agents, treat them like a disease or like a wild animal. And you say that it's very bad when the disease runs wild or when the wild bear goes around eating babies. And so, you know, the steps that you can take to curb those negative effects are the steps that you ought to take. And so you have some reason to punish, but that reason is not rooted in any kind of moral foundation based on desert. It's based purely on, as you say, future consequences. Yes. So you could have that view that we should hold people responsible. I mean, it's going to become very counterintuitive on non-consequential grounds, right? If it maximizes the good to frame a homeless person for a murder that he didn't commit to prevent rioting, we ought to do that. And the opposite is true as well. If you should let someone go, in fact, it's horrible to prevent more deaths. But again, this depends on the truth of consequentialism. And that's going to raise some serious issues. Nalia, as I mentioned, problems with backtracking, but also problems with counterfactuals. Is there a right answer to what would have happened had you not performed this act? But again, I mean, the more fundamental problems we've moved far away from responsibility. We're just saying, look, no one's responsible, but we should act as if they're responsible because they have the best results. Okay, that's a big concession. I mean, and it has strong implications for things like what do people deserve, if anything? Do people have rights at all? What should we conclude about God and the religious view of the world? The implications here are enormously strong. So yeah, perhaps the consequential approach works, but it requires a radical revision of the way we see the world. And it also requires that consequentialism, and to my mind, act consequentialism, be defensible. This is not entirely obvious to me, especially if human beings are not moral agents. So any position that denies the truth of deontology or non-consequentialist ethics is a position I can get on board with. But what I don't like is when you start threatening my consequentialism. So Mm -hmm. so I, I want to kind of spell out a version of consequentialism that might be consistent with your view that there's no moral responsibility. I think it's taking a cue from Mark's suggestion. So the traditional formulation of the consequentialist view is that an action is right just in case it has the best consequences for everyone involved or for society as a whole. And I think traditionally the way we would understand that is it's a substantive view, right? So it's trying to define or give an account of what right action is. So it's a substantive position. And that's where you're going to start saying, well, there's a problem. But what if it was just a stipulative position? So it's just resulting good or bad consequences. That's what we mean. And that's the extent of how we can discuss morality. It's not a concept that's that's non-reducible to just good and bad events. And then secondly, I just wanted to hear more if you can cash out what the consequences for your view are for religion and for the notion of God. Sure. So let's take the, um, the stipulation case. What we mean by right is that it maximizes the good. And what we mean by wrong is that it does not maximize the good, right? Or it does not maximize the expected good. So this could be sort of a stipulation, but this is not in fact what we mean. I mean, if someone says, if you and I are talking to someone and they say, we're talking to John Martin Fisher and he says, look, I do not think that the right always maximizes the good. It's not like we think, well, you know what? We're obviously talking past each other because we're using different words here for different concepts. We know exactly what he means. We might disagree with him, but we know exactly what he means. And we're using the same concept. So I don't think as a stipulative account, we're going to get past the substantive issue of, well, what is right or wrong? 
And if it were stipulative, it would seem to have lose the property of ought to be doneness, right? We think that when you and I are talking about right or wrong, that right, you know, what's right because it's obligatory has a certain like normative force to it, not ought to be doneness. I'm not sure how stipulation can preserve that. So I think one, I don't think that's an accurate stipulation of the unified concept in which you and I can disagree with others. But second, I think we're going to lose the normative force. You said, what about the implications for religion? I think the implications here are pretty severe. So to my mind, the best arguments for God's existence relies on it. But in any case, has to do something like the greatest possible being, the maximum great being, the perfect being. And that sort of being is like intrinsically, it has maximal intrinsic goodness. Well, can beings which are not responsibly, maximally, intrinsically good, I mean, they seem to be lacking the sort of praiseworthiness with which we associate maximal greatness or moral perfection. Maybe you could say, look, he just has an infinite amount of pleasure, and in virtue of that, he's the maximally great being. But I think this moves us pretty far away from the picture of God with which most religious people operate and should operate. So I think we lose the notion of a maximally great being. Once you lose the notion of maximum great being, it's not clear any of the arguments for God's existence work. There's also going to be a problem with the problem of evil. I mean, if you think that people are not responsible, then the free will defense to the problem of evil fails. Now, maybe people think there are other defenses. There's an infinite sequence of better worlds. God's neither blameworthy nor acted warmly if he picked a finite number somewhere in an infinite sequence. Okay, perhaps, but at least it's going to get fairly complex. So one, I think we lose the underlying justifier of the arguments for God's existence. But second, I think there are important implications for the problem of evil, maybe not fatal ones, but real issues arise. So yeah, I think it's a major challenge. And also when you think about it, the religious picture of the world, that people are responsible beings and God has created the world such that we may enjoy it, but we should exercise our responsibility in the right way, earning credit rather than discredit. We lose that picture. There's no desert. There's no responsibility. In what way would God have created the world for us? In what way would we have a special relation to him? So I think perhaps it doesn't defeat the religious picture, but it's certainly in conflict with a lot of major parts of it. And particularly, I think, the central argument of God's existence. There might be some comeback there. So perhaps the stipulative utilitarian says, well, the normative force lies in the intrinsic goodness of good events happening and the intrinsic badness of bad events happening. And that's where the, the normative force pops in. It's not the rightness of the action or the wrongness of the action, but what that action brings about, the consequences, which seems in line with the ethos of utilitarianism. And then similarly, the theist might say, well, you know why God's praiseworthy? It's because God created this good world, not because God's morally responsible for creating it, but because this world was generated by God rather than another one. Yeah, so two excellent suggestions. So the notion is, okay, the normative force comes in with the goodness, but if that's right, then it's no longer a stipulation. Then it's a substantive thesis. Then you're saying, look, the right just is what maximizes the good. Why? Because all the normative force comes from goodness, and so maximal goodness is what brings maximal normative force. So I think, while it's an excellent suggestion, I think the price you pay for doing that is to move the thesis from being stipulative to being substantive. On the notion that God's good because he brought about the world, independent of whether he's praiseworthy for it, I mean, it's kind of an odd notion. Imagine we have like a random world generator, and this random world generator just happened to generate the best world it could. 
and we say, well, that will be that generator is maximally great because it brought about the best world that it could. You might think, yeah, yeah, but it didn't think to do this. It's not praiseworthy. Maybe it's not even conscious. Something seems to be missing there in, in terms of greatness. And what seems to be missing in terms of greatness is praiseworthiness. And if that's true for the random world generator, I would claim the same thing's true for God. But we do sometimes think that people are praiseworthy for their activities, purely seeing what activities they do, right? So someone cures cancer. We don't have to ask the second question, why they cured cancer. We don't have to ask, we don't have to ask to check inside their brains that all of their thoughts are under their control. We just need to know that they cured cancer to know that they're praiseworthy. So again, I like your suggestion. I actually don't think we think this. I mean, so here's an example. Imagine you have a drunk driver and he smashes into someone on the sidewalk and they bring that person to the hospital and they discover, man, this guy has an immune system that can completely defeat cancer. And so, so we actually, we research it and from that we get the cure to cancer. Do we think that the drunk driver, because he caused this to come about, is praiseworthy? No. We think, well, he caused it, but he's not praiseworthy. Well, why is he any different from the person who just happened to have this great immune system? But if there's no difference from the person who just happened to have a great immune system and the Ivy League scientist who cures cancer, if there's no difference in terms of praiseworthiness per se, why should we look at it differently? That is, why should we treat the drunk driver person with a great immune system and the Ivy League scientist any different if, and if the first one is not praiseworthy and I claim that it's not, why should the third be praiseworthy? Okay, I've got a solution for you. So the solution is that there is intentionality involved. So cancer curer intends to cure cancer. God intends to generate the cool universe. Unlike the random machine generator that generates this universe. There's no intention there. It's sort of accidental. It's random. And in the drunk driver case, there's not the intention to bring this person to the hospital with this incredible immune system that's going to help save the world. So the intention seems to matter. But notice we don't ask the further question, how did that intention arise? Like, are they responsible for their intention in order for us to decide whether we're going to praise them? So great. The question is, why do we care about intention unless the intention reflect the decision. So let's say an intention is a plan, right? So why should it matter in terms of praiseworthiness whether someone had a plan unless we think, well, the plan came about because the person made a decision and the decision is something that connects to a psychology or which he controlled. Merely having a plan by itself doesn't seem to make someone praiseworthy. And again, I mean, imagine that Patty Hearst is kidnapped this time by altruists. And they are able to put in her an intention to do something really wonderful, right? To start up a group that helps fight a certain type of parasite throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. And you think, okay, well, is she praiseworthy in virtue of having this plan? Well, well, not if the plan was manipulated into her. But if that's the case, it's unclear why we should think about the plan per se, unless it reflects the whole responsibility apparatus. And then we're back to the races. Well, what is the responsibility apparatus and do we have a basis for it? So I think your point tracks our intuitions to be sure, but I think the underlying explanation is that of the responsibility apparatus, and that forces us back and question, is there a responsibility foundation? So I wonder about this. If you think that there's no foundation for responsibility, then we've talked around the topic of whether there could be foundations for morality. If there are no foundations for morality, that might be another route to say, well, you can't be responsible for things. There's no such thing as good and bad. There's no such thing as right and wrong. The whole thing is really just nonsense walking on stilts. There would be no 
better or worse policy or law or rules. It's all just the kind of thing that could be decided at the roll of a dice because it doesn't matter one way or the other. There are just no values. So two things to say here. One is, I guess this would in part depend on whether or not you think consequentialism still produces right or wrong in the absence of responsibility. But second, ask yourself, would you think there's right or wrong if determinism were true? Imagine we discover that contrary to quantum theory and everything else, the things are determined. And not just that everything's necessitated, but every event was necessary. So let's we discover there's a first event that was necessary, and then everything that's from there was necessitated, so everything was necessary. Would we think that there is a foundation for morality? Well, again, I guess we'd go back to the kind of issues we've been discussing so far. What's left for consequentialism if, in fact, every event is necessary? And second, is there right or wrong about non-moral agents? That is, does it matter whether or not human beings are responsible for the truth of consequentialism? I'm fairly skeptical, but I'd have to sort of fully work out my views on this. But I mean, ask yourself, if you knew every event was necessary, things like we lose ought implies can. I know some people deny that. There are other ways to, like, can, we can have counter, we can have uh, cans that rely on sort of impossible scenarios or local miracles or things like that. But if you think, you know, it's kind of standard interpretation of can applies, we lose the notion that it would have been better had you done something different. Well, had you done something different requires that you could do something different. So, yeah, I just think you're right. I mean, the price here is severe. And so one thing to say, which I thought both of you brought up nicely earlier, which is, look, we know there's morality. So if agreeing that there's no responsibility means we lose morality, or at least we lose non-consequentialism, then we know that your theory is false. We just know that there's something that's gone wrong there. It really is just having a psychology that has guidance control or having a libertarian decision and uh, yeah, maybe we can't explain it. We can't handle the Patty Hearst case or the Frankenstein case. But look, I mean, it's just one absurd implication after another. And, and here's a sign of a false theory. It generates absurd implications like they're going out of style. I guess to that, I would say, well, look, I don't think I'm asking something unfair to say, one, do we need a responsibility foundation? If so, what it is? What is it? I don't think that's so much to ask. Similarly, to say, if you're responsible, then you can be blameworthy and say, well, what is the basic blameworthiness maker? You know, or can we have an infinite sequence of them? I mean, I guess I just don't think there's unfair, inappropriate, or misguided questions. And I just clearly can't answer them. So the fact that the implications are harsh, counterintuitive, and do a real hit job on our common sense worldview is kind of a painful result from this line of thinking. But I don't know what else we can do, or what else we should do more accurately. Well, Steve, it's been an absolute delight having you on the show as always, and we look forward to having you on the show many more times next year. David Benatar is famous for saying, if it is the case that antinatalism is true, that it's better never to have been, probably the most deeply counterintuitive view that one could have, but it's true, and you just have to live with it. And maybe that's the case. Maybe there's just no more responsibility. Maybe there's no morality. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I'm tempted to say that. And that's what the three of us, are, our job is. I mean, we explore what's true. Whether somebody has the best results or not, how should we structure the system? Those are kind of interesting empirical questions, although they sort of presuppose certain moral and responsibility issues. But yeah, I mean, I think that our job is to say what's true or what isn't true. And so here's what I think is true. It's impossible to be morally responsible. <laughs>